Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory. If you haven't already subscribed, please catch us wherever you love to listen to your podcast, from the Relevant Radio app to Apple, YouTube, you name it, we are there. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, please be sure to go and give us a five-star review to help other people discover the podcast. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. Welcome to our weekly happy hour. Today on Trending, every Monday, joining me in just a moment will be the author of the new book, Digital Madness. This book comes out tomorrow, and it is a book that is a must-read. I was just telling my husband, you have to read it too for yourself, but also for kids. The reality of technology and its impact on us. We all need to be aware of it, which is why we're talking about it today during our weekly happy hour. Dr. Nicholas Carderis will join me in just a moment to share about that. We'll talk about who and what our influencers are and the dissatisfaction trap that so many of us are stuck in. We'll talk about solutions to the real digital madness. Adults are guilty of it too, not just the struggle of kids staring at screens all the time. We'll talk about the philosopher warrior and how to battle against technology addiction and use that is impacting the bottom line. I'm also going to unpack a new study claiming that young people in the United Kingdom are more likely to pray than the older generations. Hmm, thought that was interesting. Maybe you have a thought on that. Maybe there's a difference between the United States and the UK on this topic. We'll also talk about today's feast day, the most holy name of Mary, and the significance for us using her name, and even why we honor Our Lady's name. And I'll dive into some of my top five tips for eating healthy to keep us healthy and happy and active. You're listening to Trending with Tim Marie during our weekly happy hour. Joining me now is Dr. Nicholas Carderis. He's the author of, I mentioned earlier, the new book coming out tomorrow, Digital Madness, How Social Media is Driving Our Mental Health Crisis and How to Restore Our Sanity. I have been reading this book. It is phenomenal. I had an advanced copy. You must read it again. I said to my husband just a few minutes ago, you have to read this book. Dr. Carderis is the country's foremost technology addiction expert. He's a regular guest here on Trending. He's Ivy League educated psychologist. He's taught neuropsychology at the doctoral level. He's an author of a favorite book of mine from 2016 known as Glow Kids, How Screen Addiction is Hijacking Our Kids and How to Break the Trans post link on social media, and he's also working on the boot experience, CEO of Omega Recovery, effectively treating young people struggling with substance addiction, mental health, and or tech addiction use. This isn't just for your kids. This is for us adults as well. Dr. Carderis, welcome back to Trending. Well, thank you for having me on again. It's, a, it's really a pleasure to be here again, Marie. I am thrilled about your book because although it's a difficult topic and it's interesting because I've read some of the reviews, advanced reviews, the book comes out tomorrow and many people are talking about this almost as if it's a book to address the problems with kids, but in no way does your book just focus or even predominantly focus on children. You're talking about the real dissatisfaction that all of humanity is facing today in the world of technology, 
artificial intelligence, the future of the metaverse, social media. Talk to me a little bit about what you've seen in practice, perhaps some client examples, and let's talk about this binary trap we face. Yeah, it's definitely a, a societal book. It's not a book just for kids. It's a book that really looks at what's happened to us as a species, and it's really essentially one step forward for technology and two steps backwards for humanity. And really looking at that inverse relationship of how we seem to be um, getting really harmed, both spiritually, socially, neurophysiologically, developmentally, the more our technology marches ever forward. And, you know, when I wrote Glow Kids, the, the thesis then, the wake-up moment that I was trying to have for people who were essentially most of us as adults who were asleep at the switch, understanding that, hey, our little fantastic little gizmos are really impacting our kids and, and they're habit forming and they're habituating and they're, there's a thing called tech addiction. And so that was the battle six years ago. And now the battle is what seems to be a three-step playbook from big tech. It seems to be one, get us addicted because addicted the addiction leads to, to monetization and little consumers, you know, cradle to grave consumers. But we're seeing that it's, we're not just addicted. We're seeing that that addiction is leading to a whole host of other shifts in our society. You know, it's, it's I equated almost like a boxer in, in the boxing ring where you start off and you're probably not a boxing fan. I don't know. I'm, I'm speculating, but <laughs> you know, you start with body blows, you weaken up a person with body blows and then you go in for the knockout punch. And the habituation was the body blows. It really kind of, the, the, you know, the language that I use in the new book is it, it compromised or it weakened our psychological immune system. Mm -hmm. And then once we have, once we're weakened, then we're really vulnerable to a whole host of other types of issues. Um, there's an emptiness. There's a, there's a psychological um, impairment that's happened that now is makes us vulnerable to behavior modification and temptations and and psychiatric disorders and as a society is tearing us apart and and that may or may not have been the agenda to begin with but it's certainly the maybe the unintended consequence maybe the intended consequence and so that's that's the narrative of the new book looking at the various ways that the frankenstein monster of big tech which i call social media has broken free from its restraints and is now mm -hmm. really doing some harm to our society and the individuals within our society. We'll hear a lot of people talk about digital detoxes or you know, trying to have a better philosophy with your phone. I know ever since college, I've tried to lock my phone away or do mm -hmm. various things because I recognize the change it affected in me, both the screen itself as well as social media. And it seems as if we go through waves in life, Dr. Carderis, where we try to be really good, but then we're sucked back in. I was just talking to a licensed marriage and family therapist last week, and I said, all of us are struggling, even those who are aware of the necessity to decrease technology use and social media use. What do you do in order to stay strong and not have your day-to-day -day life or relationships impacted? So I want to talk about solutions with you later of how to mm -hmm. combat this tech giant uh, that this is what they're here. It's not going anywhere. Uh, but before we go there, let's talk a little bit about some of your case studies. I know you have a story about a young woman named Susie who you've worked with and kind of explain this trap of dissatisfaction that everyone is finding themselves in today. 
Yeah, and yeah, and we will definitely get to the some of the solutions later. How to build your shield, your you know your shield of armor to protect yourself against some of these toxic influences. Because I really do view this as a invasive virus. You know, that's really infecting infecting all of us to varying degrees. And the case with Susie that you mentioned, she was emblematic of a, a large number of the percentage of our clients in our treatment program in Austin. We treat young adults, seventeen to thirty years old, and um, and so, you, you know, we're seeing a lot of them that are coming in with psychiatric disorders. But let me let me back up a moment. Before a young person gets to the stage where they have to come to a residential psychiatric program, um, I think most of our young people are getting impacted by our influencers, right? We're, we're a social species and social media should have been like chocolate for peanut butter in uh, in the equation. It should have been something that people thought was going to enhance our connectivity and make us feel more socially connected. But in fact, what it's done, it's done a couple of things that are really toxic. Um, it's really increased the impact of quote unquote influencers. And we've always had influencers in our society, the athletes, the movie stars, the the authors, the people that we always looked up to always had some effect of where we wanted to emulate our, our icons. But, but that effect has now been put on steroids because now with social media and influencers, um, it's not like when I was growing up and, you know, be like Mike was an ad campaign for Michael Jordan, where you wanted to play basketball like Mike. Now you want to be like Kylie Jenner or some of the most vapid and value deprived (laughs) influencers and and so and you see every little moment of their life uh, now you don't i mean you don't see every moment but you feel like you do because they're posting their instagram live stories they're posting you know all of these things that you're seeing a lot more than you uh, did of say michael jordan back in the day well that's exactly right right michael jordan i might see a bulls game you know once a week or something for a couple of hours it wasn't 24 7 permeating my day-to-day existence and so you're exactly right. It's so much more invasive and frequent. And let's face it, these are artificially curated synthetic lives. These aren't real people. These are, you know, photo brushed and, you know, fake Lear jets and, you know, so many of these influencers who live to create Instagram moments that are not real. And so, mm-hmm. yes, you have something called the social comparison effect where so many young people are struggling through depression because, compared to these artificially curated and, you know, um, glorified lives, they feel like, oh my God, my, my life where I'm working this menial job feels horrible in comparison to these, these quote unquote influencers. So they're affecting the values of young people, right? The number, according to uh, a recent study, the number one career goal for the average high school kid in the United States today is to be a YouTuber. Um, the number one goal for... Yeah, and number one goal for kids in China is to be an astronaut. So, mm-hmm. so we're seeing that it's changing our values and our goals. We want to be famous for fame's sake. We want empty calorie values that really don't have intrinsic meaning. And we weren't designed to be like that. We need it to have deeper meaning and purpose. So when you make your God, when you make the coin of the realm followers and views and, and the most superficial of things... Even if you climb that mountain, then you realize that, oh my God, I've been praying at a false altar. This this is not what mm-hmm. gives my life meaning and purpose and a sense of value. So so there's that piece where people feel empty and depressed compared to the huge influence of these influencers on 
you know, most young people's lives today. And, and then you have the psychiatric social contagion effect where you have, um, well, you know, as I was saying before, the coin of the realm, you know, what's, what's popular on, you know, who gets the most views and the most followers is the most over the top behavior. So the most performative people, the people with the most outrageous behavior, oftentimes are these psychiatrically uh, challenged folks who may or may not have a psychiatric disorder. I question whether some of these psychiatric influencers have the actual disorder or whether they're just performing. So you have huge communities right now of dissociative identity disorder, which used to be multiple personality disorder, you know, folks claiming, young folks claiming to have over a hundred identities um, with, with hundreds of thousands of followers who are beginning to also show signs of dissociative identity disorder. You have TikTok Tourette's where you have a handful of Tourette's influencers with over 2 billion views, where now the teenage girls who follow them are beginning to show signs of Tourette's disorder. You have yes. borderline personality disorder um, influencers who's, again, same thing is happening. Their followers are showing signs. So Susie was... So, so most of the society is getting impacted. Our values are getting lowered. You know, it's the, it's the debasing of the culture. It's the, it's the coarsening of the culture, as we used to say. But now you have folks like Susie who are coming into psychiatric treatment programs like mine who are showing signs of psychiatric disorders. And in my treatment program, you don't have any technology for eight weeks. So there's no social media. There's no smartphones. There's, there's none of that. There's just treatment. And for a large percentage of these folks who are coming in with already diagnosed personality disorders, like borderline personality disorder, like Susie had, um, they didn't actually really have the disorder. In Susie's case, she was a 22-year-old young woman who had recently completed community college, and she'd gone through a depression phase because all of her friends went away to, to university, and she felt alone, and she got a little depressed, and she started you know, researching things online to navigate her depression. And she fell into a borderline personality um, chat room. And then from there, she started watching borderline you know, BPD um, videos and influencers. And then she started learning how to cut herself. And, and she started really admiring some of these BPD influencers because they were pretty dramatic and over the top and histrionic as, as those with that disorder tend to be. And so that's monkey what see, media- monkey do. Right. And that's what mm-hmm. social media was presenting. That's how the algorithms work. Once you so- show an interest in something, oh, you yeah. receive quite a bit of that particular content. And so TikTok, Susie, Facebook. Right, yeah. Right. I mean, they're so culpable for this and they know it. Once Susie sniffed or once the algorithm sensed that Susie was sniffing in that territory, they started bombarding her with that. And, and that's, they're culpable in the sense that Frances Hogan, the Facebook slash Instagram whistleblower, yes, she showed that they had internal research showing that the algorithms were hurting, especially young females. It was increasing their suicide rates by 13%. It was magnifying eating disorders by 17%. And you know, if you have an eating disorder, it's a very, very potentially lethal disorder. They knew that there were internal emails saying maybe we should be a little bit more careful with this algorithm and not have it be like a heat-seeking missile seeking out young female teenage vulnerabilities. And they said no. They said keep the algorithm at the optimum level for engagement. And and who cares if this is killing young girls? And that's the mm-hmm. part. You know, if it was just, oh, my God, they had no idea, you know, and, and it's still terrible if they had no idea, but they knew, they know. 
They know that this is hurting people and, and they don't care. And the algorithm has no value judgment. Right. The algorithm will give you more of whatever content, you know, you could be searching cannibalism videos and it'll give you more of them if that's <laughs> oh, what it dear. thinks you want. So what happened to Susie? She's looking at borderline personality disorder. She's in mm -hmm. chat room. She's finding this content in social media. She ends up so eventually she's cutting herself, right? Right. So she starts cutting herself and she starts sort of showing all the superficial symptoms of BPD. And she comes into our program and, you know, our clinical director started noticing that, wait a second, her, her history doesn't tend to belie that of genuine BPD. You know, it's a really significant personality disorder with very high suicide rates and typically it shows itself earlier on in your development, early on. It doesn't show itself post high school. Typically you've shown um, dysregulated behavior. You've shown um, um, you, inconsistent relationships, very binary thinking early, early on, but she had a very healthy, normal uh, high school experience. She was popular. She had friends, steady relationships. And, and so our clinical director started suspecting that maybe she didn't have BPD. And the real proof in the pudding was once she was removed from social media, she started acting essentially normally within two to three weeks. She was no longer cutting wow. herself. She no longer felt suicidal. And, and, and if you generally have borderline personality disorder, you don't get better in two or three weeks. It's a multiple month, multiple year process. Um, and we've seen that with gender dysphoria. And, and by the way, a lot of BPD folks tend to also struggle with gender dysphoria because part of the symptomology is identity confusion. And so a lot of folks that we've had that were coming in thinking that they had gender dysphoria and then they needed to transition, once they landed and they got away from social media, they started realizing, and they started getting some treatment, they started realizing, oh, I'm not, I'm not the opposite gender. I just was going through some, you know, some struggles and, um, and had fallen into sort of, let's call it bad social uh, uh, bad social groupings. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's if you run with wolves, you're going to become a wolf. And if you start hanging out <laughs> in digital chat rooms of gender dysphoria or BPD or dissociative disorder, that's what you're going to start manifesting. Mm -hmm. And it's so profound that you're saying this with a connection to gender dysphoria as well, which you and I have talked about here on the show as well, of how the social media contagion, you're literally seeing after a few weeks of detox and therapeutic help as well, that you know, things from eating disorders, depression, cutting, mm -hmm. borderline personality disorder, gender dysphoria, it's gone. It goes away. And there's still a, a kind of aftermath still to be put back together. But this points, I think, to one example of an extreme of Susie or a young girl who's experiencing gender dysphoria today. But on the other end of the spectrum, it applies to us too, Dr. Carderis, in this dissatisfaction we're experiencing mm -hmm. and something you call in your book, the binary trap. Can you talk a little mm -hmm. bit about that? Yeah, essentially it's, it's the propensity that we have a society have been pushed into now to see things in polarity extremes. And I think that's entirely been shaped by the polarity chasm that is social media, right? Social media lives in the extremes. It, 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 and I, I really, Timory, I've really come to see social media as, as almost a living organism that feeds off of our most, most vitriolic, extreme emotional content. That's what drives, that's what feeds the beast. And then the beast absorbs our vitriolic negative content and then feeds it back to us in an extremification loop. So if I tended to be 
uh, extreme left or extreme right or, 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 or was interested in some kind of mental health issue, it's now taking that and it's magnifying it and it's feeding it back and it's, it really does seem to sort of, I mean, that's, that's in the DNA of social media. You know, Facebook was developed by Zuckerberg as hot or not. It, right. was, it was a choice between two extremes, yay or nay. And, and mm-hmm. even the word bind, even the word digital rather, digital means ones and zeros. Um, there's no fractions, there's no gray area. And, and so if you are raised in this um, binary soup that social media is, if you're a kid that's been raised in social media, my hypothesis is, are you even able to see nuance and the gray in between? Is your brain now restructured in a way that you could only process information in in polarity in binary terms and and that's pathological because in psychology we call it dichotomous thinking being able to see the gradations of an argument is healthy to be highly reactive and only to see things in black and white love and hate up and down without the gradations in between is not healthy and and that's what look look at our society society right now yeah and, uh, we, you know, can't, it's interesting. we can't have healthy conversations right and it's interesting because i think people automatically get this yes you see the political polarization or the religious polarization today however in your book the first example you give is of a person who's you know saying kind of pushing everyone away i don't need anyone i don't want anyone hold on i love everyone and i need everyone i want them right now and it reminded me of the drama i have seen of so many young people boys and girls adult men adult women like this a crisis of divorce and relationships today the mm-hmm. crisis of a teenage girl today who you know doesn't want anything to do with anyone hates the world doesn't want any friendships but no please i'm begging you love me love me love me this emotional roller coaster that or, or, this binary or I, hate trap. You, I, I hate you don't leave me mm-hmm. <laughs> you know that yes. um exactly yeah. And I think that this is something we are all experiencing on maybe a grandiose or a minute level as individuals, but we're not realizing how we're being impacted as well by technology. It's not just these extreme examples. And this brings to mind as well, Dr. Carderis, how there's more coming our way and we need to prepare ourselves. You know, I look at, for example, artificial intelligence and the metaverse, which you and I have spoken about, you write mm-hmm. about in this book that I highly recommend everyone pick up could you briefly speak to how we have to face this artificial intelligence metaverse that's coming at us now we're already basically living in a metaverse in some ways already Uh, but my mom asked uh, about a year ago I remember I was sitting there with some of my cousins and she asked uh, she said, what do you think the end game of artificial mm-hmm. intelligence is? And she kept asking that. And, you know, we were throwing around, you know, on one side, you know, it would become a god. On the other side, you know, just wanting to avoid pain of either social uh, discomfort mm-hmm. or even the pain of death, the fear of death. And you talk about much of the discussion around the end game of artificial intelligence and that this is exactly part of what's going on. It's this desire for the god complex and immortality. Mm-hmm. Can you speak to that briefly? Yeah, we've known for a long time that any kind of an addiction is a form of societal control. If you can get a a populace addicted to drugs, alcohol, a delusion, anything, um, they're much more malleable, much more sheep-like, able to control. And, uh, you know, we knew this in the time of American slavery. Slave owners used to give 
every male slave a bottle of moonshine every Saturday because the idea was a drunk slave was not going to be able to rebel, revolt, educate themselves, and and leave the plantation, as it were. So now we're seeing in this digital virtual reality illusion, the Matrix, let's call it the Matrix, because I think that's a brilliant movie that is not too far from the truth. Um, mm -hmm. If we're all living in the Matrix, we're much more easily controlled and monetized, right? I think the end game, theoretically, for big tech is how can they keep the masses happily complacent playing candy crush and distracted with social media nonsense while we're not really seeing the big picture of how we're being um well first of all they're 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 data mining us and they're monetizing us because the let's call it the five the five people that are running the planet right now the five oligarchs of big tech they need resources they need resources to get to their end game which i do write about in my book i do think is they've written it about it themselves is, is their own immortality. Um, it's the singularity as their high priest, Ray Kurzweil talks about. Ray Kurzweil is a high level Google executive who wrote the book, The Singularity, and who is uh, an inspirational, he's the spiritual guru for Bill Gates, Sergey Brin and Larry Page. They That's follow funny. him. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and so Ray Kurzweil has talked about this end game of humanity, trans, it's transhumanism. It's humans. Mm -hmm evolving past our biological, spiritual constraints and essentially merging into this sort of virtual cloud and becoming godlike. And by the way, this is literally the quote, the, the one of the quotes from his book when, uh, I'm sorry, it's not from his book, it's from an interview. They ask Ray Kurzweil if God exists. And he said, does God <laughs> exist? I would say not yet. Yes. Because he was talking yeah. about once non-biological, this is the quote, once non-biological intelligence gets a foothold in the human brain, the machine intelligence in our brains will grow exponentially. And he's essentially saying we will become God. Right. God doesn't exist right. yet. but and, and so it sounds insane sort of when you hear it, but but he is um, not only, the, the as I said, the inspirational leader for, for the people that are controlling our lives, but they've invested in biological life extension. There's a company, Carol Co., that they've put over $25 billion in that is trying to find ways to extend life so we can get to be about 150, 200 years old because they need an intermediary step because we're not ready for the singularity yet. It might be 20 or 30 years away. And so they want to make sure that they stay alive long enough. But they also mm -hmm. want us to stay happily distracted on the digital plantation you know, uh, wasting our lives away while they get richer and more powerful. Mm. That's it's a Tower of Babel plan. all over again. It is literally a Tower of Babel all over again. This is a spiritual crisis at the end of the day. I really do think we're against of what do we believe about the afterlife, about life now, and why I think as people of faith, we need to take a position on this to not be uh, consumed by the digital madness. That's the author of the new book, Digital Madness, available tomorrow. We'll come back talking about philosophical ways to protect ourselves from the digital madness. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app.
Welcome back to our weekly happy hour here on Trending. Joining me now is Dr. Nicholas Carderas. He's a regular guest here on Trending, and he is releasing tomorrow. You can pick up your copy. I'm reading it. It's fantastic. Digital Madness is the book, How Social Media is Driving Our Mental Health Crisis and How to Restore It. If you don't know Dr. Nicholas Carderas, he's the country's foremost technology addiction expert, Ivy League-educated psychologist. He's taught neuropsychology at the doctoral level. And parents, listen up. This book you need to read Glow Kids. He wrote the book back in 2016, completely relevant today, how screen addiction is hijacking our kids and how to break the trance. We posted links on social media. Just follow me at Timmery, T-I-M-M-E-R-I-E to grab that or in the podcast notes for today's show, which by the way, share this episode with someone you know who's just experiencing that dissatisfaction life. Take back our happiness. Work on screens. Tomorrow we're going to talk about philosophy when it comes to technology, social media, and if we have a rule book or a mission statement for how we use that in our lives, especially technology. But now Dr. Carderas is with me. We're talking about real solutions. In his book, Digital Madness, he talks about the philosopher warrior as what will make it so that you are able to uh, endure against the challenges that technology have in our lives and how to become resilient and have what he calls grit in the face of technology that is meant for us to consume it and be users of it and to not stop. Dr. Carderas, let's talk about the philosopher warrior you discuss in your book to help us take back our lives and prevent just the crisis of the metaverse and AI in the not too soon future. Yeah, because I think so many times parents or people will ask about, you know, let me have some tips for my child for social media. And, you know, of course, we can say, you know, the best thing you could do is delay, delay, delay. You know, the, the later your child sort of gets on to the, the world of the insane social media wor- uh, portal, the better, because the further along they'll be in their development. But really, I, I suggest turning the telescope around and not looking at social media, but looking at ourselves. How can we strengthen ourselves? How can we strengthen and fortify our psychological immune system, our spiritual immune system, and become, as you said, philosopher warriors? Because I think that's the archetype that we need to embrace against this toxin that's really, um, you know, taking out our civilization. That's really permeating. It, it, it feeds off of vulnerability. It feeds off of not critically thinking people. It feeds off of people who don't have a clear sense of identity or purpose. So if you're the empty, drifting, not sure who you are, um, fragile uh, young person, you're going to be much more vulnerable to get sucked into a variety of digital rabbit holes that are going to be very toxic and very destructive and very shaping in a negative sense of who you are. So I believe that the solution to the modern is the ancient and and when I said the ancient, I meant uh, the classical philosophy sense. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a student of ancient classical Greek philosophy, and and Greek I think that a lot you. of this. What's that? I said it's the Greek blood in you. It is. You know, I, I sort of circled back to my. Yeah, it was. It's a part of my heritage, you know, and I had peripherally studied it as an undergraduate and really rediscovered it in a much more personal way um, when I got older in my life and when I really needed it in my life because there was so much wisdom there. And, and we have so many stereotypes that, you know, old white men in togas and 
rationalism, <laughs> but they, they were quite deep and they influenced the early Christian church. Uh, you know, Augustus and, you know, Platonic thought was really at the core at the at the birth of Christianity in terms of some of the shaping influences of mm-hmm. of how um, we understand right. the world. And and so at the end of the day, if you can embrace and help either yourself or your loved ones become philosopher warriors, because what we've become is, well, what's the opposite of a philosopher warrior? I would, I don't know, I would call it um, uh, <laughs> a weak, a weak, uh, you know, a, a weak, not deep thinker. So, right. so a not deep Sheep. thinker. So, so I would say the opposite archetype would be like a Kylie Jenner, reactive, <laughs> fragile snowflake is the opposite of a philosopher <laughs> warrior. And a philosopher warrior is able to critically think and, 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 and wade through the, the constant flow of toxic nonsense and able to discern what's real and what's not, what's fact and what's fiction. We don't need gatekeepers to tell us what's misinformation, disinformation, nonsense. We're able to discern that for ourselves. And, and we've developed a sense of grit and resilience by leaning into experiences and not being bubble wrapped and, and needing safe spaces and trigger warnings because it's mm-hmm. that being exposed to life that makes us stronger, right? The old Nietzsche saying that that doesn't kill us makes us stronger. And unfortunately, we've been so bubble wrapping, uh, so many of us, that we've become so fragile to everything so that when we do get exposed to things, we get highly um, impacted Sensitive. by them. Right, so right. there's that. And, and, the, and the other part that's really, um, you know, the, the philosophers taught us to look up at the night sky and have a sense of wonder and awe at creation, at life, to ask the deeper questions. What is my purpose? Why am I here? And in that exploration, if a person can connect to what their sense of purpose and meaning is, that's a really big immunization factor towards drifting and getting sucked into uh, ideological extremism. Uh, I think we've talked about this. I've worked with, I was an expert witness on a horrible capital murder case of a young white suburban kid in Palm Beach County who became radicalized to Islam and and committed the most horrific murders uh, um, in, in in the furtherance of his indoctrination via YouTube of ISIS. Um, and this young man had no core identity, no core spiritual belief. Mm. If he had that, he wouldn't have been vulnerable to the brainwashing of ideological extremism, which is now coming, you know, coming to a theater near you, coming to a computer near you through YouTube algorithms. Uh, and, and that's really what I think we as a society need to do is to kind of buckle up, toughen up, and we're not going to change the, the ocean, the digital ocean that we're swimming in, unfortunately, for better or for worse, I think it's here. We could regulate that a little bit. There's legislation that we can do and take away right. Section 230 protections. And there's political things that we can do to help soften the blow. But at the end of the day, we've got to lean into our spirituality and our intellect and our and our um, resilient grit and strength to be stronger uh, uh, humans. What kind of consumer are we going to be or will we continue to be consumed? I mean, that's the question before us. We're looked at as consumers and users and the drug industry is the only other industry where people are considered in that way. And so when you're saying build grit and resilience, find a purpose that resonates for you, you need to have these life philosophies and purposes in order to endure 
the true temptation there is out there. So what other right. uh, tips do you have in this philosopher warrior way of living to help us with technology today to be resilient? Well, you know, if you study Marcus Aurelius, or if you study Plato, if you study some of the ancient minds, even, you know, even in bibliotherapy, even reading five to six pages a day of some of the ancient wisdom uh, masters, um, there's a there's a transcendent truth in some of those writings that is that elevates a person, right? Because there's this idea that you know Plato had his sense of the ideal realm where the uh, transcendent ideas lived. Even Pythagoras believed that um, there was transcendent numbers that were eternal, and this was if you know. Pythagoras believed that if you understood mathematics, you could could see the face of God because it was it was sort of the inner workings of the universe. Um, the more you lean into those kinds of explorations, the more you raise and elevate your consciousness, rather than watching inane YouTube videos of knuckleheads dropping watermelons off of a bridge, <laughs> um, which which debases all of us, right? And then, and then, and right. you know, I'm not saying that we always have to be reading Plato and we can't watch a Three Stooges episode. You know, of course we all need some comedic slapstick relief, but we need to lean in a little bit more towards those things that nurture us. You know, you, you know that St. Ignatius believed that if we studied the lives of the saints, we became, we elevated our spiritual condition by by um there, there was an elevating effect by almost by osmosis by reading about some of these uh, great figures and i think when you that's the antidote uh, quite honestly at the end of the day if you have a young person that's versed in ethics and civics and and mm -hmm. classical thought and 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 then also then physically conditions themselves right they you you begin to not just become a Thank couch you, potato so. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, with a remote where you're just sort of sitting there, you know, sound body, sound mind. The ancients believed, you know, uh, the Pythagoreans believed that you had to do intense physical training for two hours a day before you could do deep mental exploration um, because you had to keep your your instrument tuned to receive transcendent wisdom. Uh, and whether we believe that that's theological or from the divine realm, um, it's certainly an, uh, from above. And, and for some people, right. that's creativity. For some people, that's, mm -hmm. you know, they find the connection to God or the divine through painting or writing or music. For other people, it's intellectual. Intellectual in the sense, I don't mean intellectual in the academic sense. I mean intellectual that the intellect can be, you know, the Greeks had a word, the noose. The noose was almost the... Um, it was almost like the Holy Spirit. The noose was the, the connecting thread between the divine and the human. And so how do we touch the Godhead on the humanly plane? Well, when we engage in practices that move us forward in that direction, we're not going to be impacted. You know, the social media will bounce off of us. It's not going to be our kryptonite like it currently is. Um, and Absolutely. But it's not, and a, it you know, par parents want easy one, two, three solutions. It's not going to be. Right. No. something so simple no. it's a fairly complex lifestyle issue it's it's we're gonna have to buckle right. up and fortify ourselves not just say here's something you could do in five minutes and we're done 
You're talking about the meaning of life, the purpose of life, having a life ethic. I mean, helping to build that in ourselves and in others. And I even think of the example of reading the classical philosophers that you say. I remember some years ago, I read a quote somewhere from C.S. Lewis where he talked about how for every book of the last century that we read, we should read two to three books of a different century for the purpose of helping us to have a greater worldview, to be not so narrow-minded by the current Mm -hmm. time we live in, whether it be spirituality, morality, ethics, art. And it's it's work to do that. It, it, it's truly mm-hmm. work to dive into older texts and see the way people thought and interact. I even think, for example, a rather modern example, the classic Anne of Green Gables uh, a series mm-hmm. that my mom read to me when I was a child, the Canadian mm-hmm. uh, movie that was such a wonder. When I read those books, I reread them a few years ago, and I remember being astounded by that work, that in those books, the expectation was that by about 13 years old, a Mm-hmm. young woman, the girl would be considered a young woman, a man would be considered a young man at that age, that the character was fully formed already at that mm-hmm. time. Yet we're looking at 13-year-olds today, and they're in severe existential crises, usually for the next 17 years of their life into their 30s. And it kind of smacks you in the face when you realize we have a completely different worldview today from people just 100 or 200 years ago. And they don't have the attention span now to read some of those books because the instant gratification culture of the digital has totally destroyed their ability to deeply think or have the attentional abilities to read uh, a classic work, whether it's 200 years old or 400 years old. I try to read about three or four pages a day, just almost like as a daily routine of some of Plato's dialogues. Like some people might read the Bible and the dialogues are dialogues they're entertaining they're conversations between some people about pretty cool interesting ideas and people have no idea that they're interesting and 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 oftentimes humorous and but always enlightening and you know it's one of my favorite semi-modern book is is going back to my greek heritage it's zorba the greek and written by nikos kazanzakis who's considered the greatest modern greek writer of of uh, the 20th century and uh, and it's the protagonist is Zorba, and then the the other uh, protagonist is the unnamed um, intellectual. It's really a tale between two different archetypes. Zorba is all impulse and id and and sex, drugs, and rock and roll. He lives on impulse, and the other protagonist is a overly analytical intellectual who's afraid and paralyzed to make any decisions in his life. And the whole book is a, is an exploration of the, t- the tension between those two sides of ourselves as human beings, that side of ourselves that, that may, may make us overly cautious and the side of ourselves that is too impulsive. And you get through this book and you feel like you've really gotten deeply into that dynamic of what it means to be human and, and how we might incorporate that or learn from some of those in our lives. So reading some of these books can be really illuminating but we got to get our young people the attention span to read a 250-page book that's not just, you know, the Twilight series or something. <laughs> right, right. The junk that's easy to read, that's fun and entertaining. There's a time for that. That's perfectly okay. But right. to build, again, that resilience, that grit, to contemplate the purpose of our lives, to have a life ethic, these things require 
very serious thought. And that means reading difficult things and looking at the dumb things in society and actually having a take on it that isn't surface level. Dr. Carderis, your book is phenomenal. I'll briefly just mention, and you need to read the book. I told my husband he has to read it. He can't just listen to the interview with Dr. Carderis. He has to read the book, Digital Madness. The other two things you mentioned in building this philosopher warrior to combat the digital crisis that we're facing is to help others step out of this narcissism of self that we are living in and truly be generous. And also you mentioned be creative and allow yourselves to be bored. I think that's the best thing that parents can do for their kids, but also we for ourselves. So please go check out the new book available tomorrow by Dr. Nicholas Carderis, Digital Madness, How Social Media is Driving Our Mental Health Crisis and How to Restore Our Sanity. This is for us for our children, read the book. It is an absolute must read of the 21st century. We post the link on social media. I'll be right back here during our weekly happy hour. We're talking about what you're thinking about. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Welcome back to our weekly happy hour here on Trending. So much to talk about. I know there are a couple of studies that I wanted to get to. Fascinating study about young people in the UK and how they're more likely to pray than older generations. Hmm. I have something to say about that. We'll talk about it later in the week because I think what takes precedence even over healthy eating habits is the feast day today of the most holy name of Mary. Now, it's not a feast day that everyone commonly necessarily celebrates because it's a choice feast day for the day, but it's always been a special one to me to just think about the fact that there's a whole day dedicated as a feast day in the church just to the most holy name of Mary, her name alone. Why would we do that? And especially for our Protestant brothers and sisters who might think it's really odd the way in which we hold such a high regard for the saints and in particular, the mother of God, Mary. And I was pondering this earlier today and I read a quote from a homily by Father Matt Schmitz. No, not Father Mike Schmitz, Father Matt Schmitz. And he said that salvation begins when the archangel speaks the name of Mary. And my mind kind of was blown in that moment. Salvation begins when the archangel speaks the name of Mary. I found that a riveting comment when you think about the significance of the name of Our Lady. No, Our Lady was not necessary for salvation, but God chose her to be a part of the story of salvation history. And he didn't force her, he chose her. That greeting of the angel Gabriel, the Hail Mary that we pray, it's biblical. It's a combination of the greeting of the archangel Gabriel to Our Lady, asking uh, for her permission, for her consent to be the mother of God, as well as uh, part of the greeting of the a cousin to Mary Elizabeth when when they meet together at the visitation. But those words, salvation begins when the archangel speaks the name of Mary. What do we what do we know of that moment? Luke chapter one, hail full of grace, the Lord is with you. And actually, if you read it, it doesn't actually say Mary's name there, but often if we follow ancient biblical tradition, when 
A name is said that is considered most holy, for example, specifically God's name in the Old Testament, but even other names uh, that are used for highly esteemed holy individuals, their actual name often wasn't used. And in the greeting of Archangel Gabriel to Our Lady, he says, Hail, full of grace, the Lord is with you. What does that name Mary mean to us? What is that significant? So two things in particular stand out to me. One in particular is that her name is very maternal toward us. From the beginning of the story of the Blessed Virgin Mary, we know her as a mother. To the end of the story of the Blessed Virgin Mary, the very last words that we know spoken to Our Lady by our Lord Jesus Christ, Behold your son, that her motherhood embodies who Mary is. Hark An angel comes to her, looking for her consent in the great plan of salvation history. And there our Lord Jesus Christ departs from her, asking her to behold John, the beloved apostle, the only apostle that stood true to Christ to the very end, there at the cross. And John is a representation, the apostle John, the beloved apostle, of each and every single one of us. He's a representation of the whole church, but you, I, everyone we know, that she will bring us into her fold, into her maternal care. And so when I think about this feast day of the holy name of Mary, the significance of Mary is so profound because we're talking about our mother. There's a tradition in the church that I'm sure you know of that every time the name of Jesus is said that we're meant to genuflect, make this small, subtle, reverent genuflection, a, a, a slight, you might see it, especially in religious orders, nod or bow of the head, the upper body. I, I try to honor this because we're actually all called to this, not just religious, when we hear the name of Jesus proclaimed. But there's also a tradition that's been held for some time of when the name of Mary is said, that there's this slight genuflection, that we're not worshiping Mary, but that we're honoring Mary. The same way it used to be that when a woman walked into the room, men would rise. Or when a woman's walking toward her through a door that she's invited to walk through first. It's a culture of respect and honor. And this honor is being given today on this feast day dedicated just to the name of Mary. But again, her name to me focuses so significantly on the maternal significance of Our Lady for each of us in our lives. I'll come back to that in just a moment. The other significance to me for her name on this feast day of the most holy name of Mary is that she's known as being full of grace. As we know, she was conceived without sin. She assumed was assumed into heaven. Our Lady, our tradition holds, we believe she never committed a sin. She was preserved from that sin in her devotion to our Lord and the graces that he filled her with. And I know to some people, they look at Our Lady and think of her as so distant from themselves. I can never be like you. I can't measure up. I can't compare. I can't even think you. Sometimes people don't even think of her as human, but the reality is, is that she is, she was. And that Our Lady gives us the model of perfect union with God. Think about all of the crises she faced. If you've never prayed them before, pray the seven sorrows of Mary. Her feast day is this Thursday. And I'm praying this novena leading up to her feast day. 
And as I ponder these seven sorrows, I love praying. I'll never forget some years ago when I first came across them. You see how relatable Our Lady is in that in the thick of everything, she perpetually gave her fiat, her yes to our Lord. Leave everything, go to Egypt. Have a child on the road away from your homeland. All these crises she's faced, she stayed faithful. And this is part of the reason why we honor the most holy name of Mary.